Welcome to the Hearts Entwined podcast. In this podcast, we'll be having discussions around the secrets which attract lasting, healthy, fulfilling relationships, creating a healthy mindset, and what women should know and understand about men. Introducing your host, Lynn Smith, the Queen of Hearts, relationship expert, trainer, speaker, and best-selling author of The Cupid's Bow Technique. Lynn's mission is to have a positive impact in reducing divorce, domestic violence, and suicide. Welcome to the Hearts Entwined podcast. This is your host, Lynn Smith, the Queen of Hearts. And today, listeners, I've got a very unique guest talking about a subject which we've not touched on at all before in previous podcasts. I'm really excited to talk about this. Her name is Nisha Frere. Welcome, Nisha. Thank you, Lynn. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Now, Nisha is a trans, <clears throat> sorry, a trauma-informed pleasure educator that's a bit of a mouthful Nisha (laughs) it is but it's important to be specific right so tell the audience a little bit about what that actually means you know around what you do sure um do you mind if I use a little bit of my story to to share what that means for folks that that'd be great you know that'd be absolutely perfect if you feel comfortable doing so yeah so um I'm an incest survivor, a survivor of assault as an adult and abusive relationship. So I've got lots of, lots of experience in that range of, of uh, things. And when I was getting out of my abusive relationship um, almost 10 years ago, I started to reclaim my sexuality because after the end of that relationship, what I noticed was that I couldn't even touch myself anymore. I was terrified of sex. And prior to all that time, I really enjoyed pleasure. I really felt really um, connected to my sexuality. I felt no shame about my body, um, which was rare, you know, given my history. But um, so this sort of relationship taught me a lot of things about what happens to our bodies when we become shut down over long periods of time, but also how that affects our relationship to pleasure and sexuality. So as I started to navigate what was available at that time, 10 years ago, I realized that there were no trauma-informed options available. So a lot of the methods and approaches I found very triggering, and um, I ended up experiencing a lot of dysregulation as a result. So at that time, I was already a trauma-informed embodiment coach. And so I sort of took it upon myself to create a system or a a series of approaches that would be supportive for people with more sensitive nervous systems, whether that was because of prior uh, nervous system injuries or because of, you know, people who identify as being highly sensitive or folks on the neurodiversity spectrum. So all of the work that I do is very body-based. I don't do a lot of talk therapy. We really just work on trying to rebuild the connections between, you know, brain, heart, gut, and your, your genital system to try and find a experience of cohesion and wholeness in who we are, both as, you know, emotional, intellectual, and sexual beings in the world. And the goal with all of that really isn't just so that we can have better orgasms. It's so that, um, you know, I really believe that. And I think we talked about this briefly and before we came on the show that the health of our relationships is inextricably linked to our ability to 
to be who we came here to be mm. and to show up as the people that we know ourselves to be. So if I'm in this, you know, abusive relationship, I can't care for myself, let alone my community. I can't go and live my purpose because I'm too busy trying to stay safe in this really unsafe environment. So that's really the the overall goal is to support people to live more purposefully in life by reconnecting to an authentic experience of pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I applaud you for speaking about and being courageous enough to be vulnerable in relating it to your own story. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm, of course. And you're also the author of the book Fawn, when no mm-hmm. looks like yes. And I was particularly keen on, uh, you know, bringing this topic into the podcast today, because I think a lot of my audience won't even uh, have heard of the term fawn or fawning or be able to relate to what it means when you say when no looks like yes. So I thought it'd be great for you to give us, you know, some either tangible examples that either you've experienced that might relate to the audience listening or that you've you know you've um experienced through working with your clients yeah so most of my clients are folks who've experienced some element of unhealthy dynamics within their relationships whether it's growing up with their parents or with their you know romantic partners all of my clients have experienced fawning at one point or another within those intimate relationships. So fawning was only discovered uh, about 20 years ago. And it only came, the word fawn only came into our lexicon in 2013. So this is a fairly new discovery. Mm. And for folks who are looking to do this work, we're really at the frontier of, of learning about how it affects us in relationships and uh, and in our lives. So fawn is a stress response. That's the first thing that I want folks to get because where, let me back up. So fawning the way some people might relate to it in terms of their lived experience, it can look like people pleasing, like going along with something you don't want to do. Um, my sort of go-to <laughs> uh, description is the get out of my apartment hand job right? It's the thing you do to get the interaction over with in a way that's going to limit the amount of conflict or harm you might experience with a partner. It might be going along with a partner's uh, fantasies or just letting their turn-ons be yours because it's easier. So all of these behaviors are evidence of this stress response having taken place. So the stress response itself can feel like not being able to talk. It can feel like not having boundaries, um, feeling kind of locked in and immobilized in your body, really stuck, kind of that grin and bear it. I have to make the best of this really bad situation and just try to get through the end of it, right? Which is really common in any kind of, you know, unhealthy, dynamic, toxic relationships, codependent relationships. We see this a lot. And the issue for, I think, a lot of women especially is that fawning as a stress response, because again, this is happening on the body level. It's not just some, you know, trait of being bad at relationships. These are are behaviors that emerge as a result of what's happening in our physical bodies. Mm. The issue with the stress response is that it's also conditioned. 
So it's part of how we perform femininity. It's the expectations that are placed on women to constantly be nurturing and caring and cleaning up the messes and taking on all the emotional labor within a relationship or in the workplace or, you know, with friendships. So it's complex in that it's, it's not just physical. It's also psycho-emotional and it's also again, so socially conditioned. So I feel like I just said a lot there. So I'm going to lean back and see if you have any questions that you want to tease out. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose um, what, what I'd like to uh, get you to do is initially just give us some practical examples of what fawning looked like either for you or, you know, your, uh, uh, what's most common in your clientele experience so that the audience sure. can get an idea of, you know, whether they are somebody that's either previously experienced this or are currently experiencing this. Okay. So um, abandoning yourself, self-abandonment, either in the bed, playing nice in bed, going along with something that your partner wants to do to try and save the relationship or to try and keep the relationship together for the sake of the kids. You know, these are things that happen in, especially within our, if we're talking about sex and intimacy, it's really the deprioritizing of our needs, of our pleasure, of um, our boundaries for the sake of someone else's pleasure. So a great example that I hear a lot is, you know, relationships where, um, and this, it's not always, you know, this organization, but it's often a man who has decided he wants to open up the relationship or become polyamorous. And it's not in integrity for his female partner, but she goes along with it because she wants to keep the relationship together. Um, so it's really uh, what happens is we sacrifice our authenticity, what might be really deeply true for us in mm. order for, for that attachment, that, that connection that we have in the relationship. So another one could be, you know, um, your partner really likes anal and you don't, but you go along with it because he likes it. So little things, little things like that. And it's really just that sacrificing of what's authentic for us and what we want to experience so that we can make somebody else happy so that we can make someone else like us or so we can avoid harm, especially in the case of, you know, abusive and, and domestic violence um, situations. So what are the Is that solutions? clearer? Yes, definitely. That's some great examples there. So Nisha, what are some of the solutions that you, um, it, you know, discuss or suggest from a, a practical point of view, um, as a starting points, you know, little easy, maybe um, steps or exercises that people can start to do to correct this, because it doesn't mean that you, mm -hmm. you know, obviously need to end the relationship you're in, because if you've been going along with something, you're, you're, you're equally responsible, I suppose, in um, this behavior continuing, because you're absolutely giving out the message that it's okay for your partner to do it even though you're not comfortable actually no that's not true and that's what wow. i'm trying to get home to people is that this is not something that we're doing choicefully these this is our body having an automatic subconscious response to a lack of safety and and hierarchical 
stress. So this happens in relationships where there's an imbalance of power. We don't do this. We don't people please. We don't do these things because we want to. We do them because whatever it is in our circumstances is telling us that we have to in order to maintain a level of safety that allows us to feel secure in our circumstances. So to kind of answer your question, for people, most of the people who find me are folks who have been living with this for a long period of time and have had to end the relationship because no amount of counseling or exercises or eye gazing or, you know, somatic attempts to, you know, repair the connection has been successful. So I see women after they've ended the relationship, but for people who are in the relationship, it's really important that the partner be part of the process because invariably, okay. So if we're talking about a heterosexual pair, yes, the man has no idea of what he's doing to cause his partner to fawn, to trigger this stress response in her body. Hmm. So the man has to be equally invested in supporting his female partner to feel safe in her authenticity, to not feel like she needs to um, sacrifice herself in order for him to feel good. You know, pleasure isn't pleasure if only one person is feeling good in it. Right. right so yeah. that's, that's a real, um, that's the really most important part is that it has to be a team effort. And it's, this involves a lot of like dismantling of unhealed masculine uh conditioning for the male partner um, and really supporting his female partner to have an equal say in the way their sex life evolves and the way they each evolve as sexual beings without feeling um, a sense of coercion. Like you have to do this for me because this is what I need to feel good. You know, this happens a lot in relationships where there might be um, pornography uh, dependencies Right. Yeah. So um, yeah. that's the that's the most important thing is for if you are in a relationship, you have to have a team effort because both people are involved in supporting the safety of the sexual container that you're in. So if if my partner has no idea what he's doing to make me feel unsafe, he has to be aware of the fact that something he's doing is making me feel unsafe, whether I know what it is, whether he knows what it is. So it's this real opportunity for both people to kind of create something new in themselves for their relationship. Um, and sometimes that's just not possible, especially in circumstances where there's a lot of either repeated um, emotional or physical abuse or, um, you know, consistent repeated um coercion and manipulation around sex. So uh, I usually tell people to hold it loosely and to really just focus on supporting themselves to reorient to a feeling of somatic comfort whenever and wherever possible. So does it actually get to the stage then where, you know, both partners are willing and open and on board with um, progressing beyond this mm -hmm. and healing this, that, 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 the female partner, for example, in the scenario that you describe, does become comfortable with whatever it was that she was comfortable with before and feel safe. Um, can you give me a more? Uh, well, I mean, for example, example. Um, the uh, the partner 
wanting one partner wanting to be polyamorous or something is that yeah. what you mean well not, not necessarily that but say for example say he enjoys anal sex for example and she right. doesn't okay okay so yeah. it's not about involving any third parties so let's let's use that as an example so they're in a okay. monogamous relationship you know it's happy um there's no abuse but she's had a previous experience in her life which makes her feel unsafe you know around that sort of sex act let's say um you know the thing about healthy relationships is that your partner shouldn't want you to do something that makes you feel unsafe that doesn't honor your authenticity that doesn't support you to live in your truth so if my partner loves me and says he's like you know all about my sexual evolution but is like no i want to do this thing to you that hurts you every single time that you hate but that you grin and bear it just to make me happy that's wiring hypoarousal so an activated stress response and feelings of unsafety into your sexual relationship and into your relationship to your sexuality as a whole so it's really dangerous now over time, if the partner decides, hey, like it's been a few years, I feel really secure in my sexuality and I'm ready to start like exploring new things. Maybe I want to try anal again. If it's coming from the woman and her, it's directed by her authentic desire, have at it. But so long as it's coming from a place of you need to abandon yourself in order to satisfy me, all it's going to be doing is reinforcing those old patterns. So we have to be really careful in this, you know, instance, basically the man has to let go of ever having anal ever again. And in that, the invitation for that male partner would be, what is it about anal sex that you just love? That's so different for you from vaginal sex. Like, what do you enjoy so much about it that you're willing to hurt your partner for it? Mm. You know, and so that's part of where we start to tease out, you know, our really our patriarchal conditioning, because we're all playing the patriarchy pan pantomime, doesn't matter what your gender is. Right. So really, this work is about pulling back all of the layers, the things, all the all the negative stories that we were told when we were young, you know, the terrible things that religion um, instilled us with about how our bodies are, are bad and evil. Um, and those stories about pleasure, not, not being for us and our bodies, not being for us. And it's a sin to self-pleasure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's uh, a lot of negative conditioning that's come along, um, with, uh, our evolution as, as well as, uh, you know, past traumatic experiences that have all shaped who we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and this is why fawn is so tricky because it is part of our social conditioning. It's part of how we're taught to perform femininity, to submit. We're taught to submit from the time we're very young girls. And part of this is because, you know, when we are developing as, you know, young kids first entering puberty, the changes in brain development for young girls set them up to people please because the increase in estrogen that girls experience uh, increases self-awareness. It increases awareness about the world that they're in. It increases emotional intelligence, but it decreases self-confidence. And at that exact same time, 
that girls are going through that big change in how they relate to themselves, their bodies, and the world. Boys, as a result of you know the increase in testosterone that they're experiencing, start to um, exhibit risk-taking behavior and pushing and invading of boundaries. That's part of what testosterone fuels for them. So we kind of have this bio, we're set up biologically for a lot of the problems that we experience, especially when we're young and starting to figure out what our sexuality is. Mm. So, you know, the thing that I really try to get home in the book and just for people generally is that we can be more than our biology. We have to be more than our biology and work to find this place of really symbiosis that honors who we are authentically as male, female, you know, non-binary, what have you. Yeah. And I think that comes into a lot of what I teach, you know, that um, we are humans that all have masculine and feminine energy, but usually in, especially in opposite sex relationships, you know, the, the feminine energy is more the dominant energy in the, in the women and the girls and the masculine energy is the more dominant energy in the, the men and the boys. It's not always the case, but mm. usually, um, but you know, within that, there is that healthy feminine energy and healthy masculine energy, as well as the unhealthy masculine energy and the unhealthy feminine energy to throw in the mix as well. Yeah. Big time. And the thing with, I think the way our society's evolved, especially over the last, you know, say 50 years, um, things are increasing. Everything's faster. Technology is everything everywhere. We can't escape the screens. The combination of these more submissive traits has caused a lot of women to overcompensate by being in their masculine energy and avoiding you know, the nourishing, healthy aspects of, of our femininity. And that can create, you know, equally challenging um, obstacles for folks in relationships. And it's not the woman's fault. It's because we're, you know, the world is faster. There are more demands on us. We are needing to, you know, make more money to have less things. And then when we sit down in front of the TV to try and unwind and let it go, it's just like everything in the world is wrong and awful. And, you know, we're, we're surrounded by these things that, that activate our nervous systems into this sort of driving urgent, um, you know, I need to survive kind of energies. I think women naturally default into masculine energy if they feel threatened in any way 100%. they just default into mm-hmm. it you know uh, as a as a as a natural default energy to to to, to protect themselves which you can mm-hmm. then and it, this was what happened to me as well um end up living permanently in that, <laughs> that masculine energy yeah. and wondering why it's impacting your relationships um in a mm-hmm. negative way and it's because we're not even aware that that's what's going on You know, the other thing that happens as a result that really like kind of breaks my heart in a lot of ways is that part of that threat and living in that what's called sympathetic dominance or that more masculine energy is that we push down our arousal and our sexual energy and anything that might be in any way, you know, attractive. We don't want to attract attention. We don't want to attract harassment. We, you know, try to make ourselves as unseen as possible because we don't want to be catcalled or what have you. And so, 
that feeling of being connected to our sexual energy, it's not just, you know, for the sake of masturbating and having orgasms, you know, this is a really innately creative part of who we are. It supports us to have really healthy relationships with one another, to have fun, to play, to be creative. Um, and so all of those aspects of who we are naturally um, automatically get shut down and the light is dimmed as a result. So that's another piece that I really try to work in through, through my work is helping people to reconnect with, you know, their light, their, their sexual energy is something that's not um, an invitation for a man to take or, you know, colonize in some way, but that it's, you know, your arousal is for you. It's for no one else. Yeah. It's for you. And it feels amazing. And we should all just enjoy it for the, the fact that it is ours. It doesn't belong to anyone else. Absolutely. And, and that's what's really attractive. You know, yeah, to, yeah. And, and draws people to you. Absolutely. Totally. It's all mm-hmm. around the that that sort of light and, and that energy that you're exuding that that makes you attractive to others, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it fuels you too. Like it's, I think, you know, um, because a lot of my abuse happened when I was so young, my connection to my light and to, um, to my spirit was really ruptured really early. And I was afraid of it. You know, I was afraid of connecting to that part of me that was so alive and so, you know, unquenchable because it reminded me of what happened that made me go dark in the first place. Yes. Right. So there can be this fear about, um, you know, stepping into this place of expansiveness and, and this place where we feel really limitless and full, both Mm. in our energies and our bodies and the world. So I always, you know, suggested people to take things in, in bite-sized pieces. You don't, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day mm-hmm. <laughs> and to really titrate how we connect with some of these parts of self and, and these energies and um, just slowly, slowly build and embrace ourselves back into wholeness. Yeah. I resonate completely with you saying about, you know, what, what was the, your light that sort of was attractive to others when you was a girl or a teen, you know, uh, yeah. when we um, quite often go through some sort of trauma um, is, is what then switches it off <laughs> and disconnects us from it. And we have to find that again, don't we? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, yeah, I can remember that happening for me, you know, that uh, obviously I, I was a, girl it was it was shining my light and attracting probably the wrong sort of um, darkness towards me and uh experience what I experienced but you know that that affected me for quite a few decades before I was managing to um find the way back to who I naturally am and be able to comfortably shine my light again without it feeling like it's a threat to my safety or security Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Oh, so much. I mean, it's devastating when it happens because, you know, I think when you, when you know who you're supposed to be and you know how you're supposed to be in the world and you can't because of this horrible thing that happened, there's so much dissonance and it can just feel, you know, disempowering is really just 
scratching the surface of it, but um, finding that way back can sometimes feel insurmountable. And I really want to, I really want to honor that for people because I, I know that I've been on like a 30 year long healing journey at this point. Um, and I mentioned this too in the book that I know it can sometimes sound really easy for me and maybe even other people who have come through similar journeys to be like, Hey, you can do it. It's fine. Just put one foot in front of the other, you know, this kind of like toxic positivity coaching rhetoric. And the truth is it's not easy and it wasn't, but I stuck with it because that's, that's really the only other option is stepping one foot in front of the other and continuing to reorient yourself to yourself, you know, to your own body. For me, that was the, that was the really big piece was just loving and having compassion for my own body every day. Yeah. And we always have that choice, don't we? We always have that choice to either, like you say, put one foot in front of the other and come through it, survive, mm-hmm. thrive, you know, and uh, uh, not, not be disempowered by what, whatever experience you, you went through uh, or, yeah. you know, we can choose to be the victim of it, can't we? And wallow in a, a pity party for the decades. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know, sometimes is part of it. You know, I always say like, sometimes we need to hurt ourselves to learn how to love ourselves. Yes. And that's part of, that's part of the growth, you know, like n- there's no wrong way of growing. Uh, we all have different roads to walk and there are gems along the way in everyone. So what would you suggest as a sort of uh, some pearls and words of wisdom for anybody that identifies with, um, you know, this behavior of fawning um, mm-hmm. and how to, what, what, what first steps do they need to, to recognize obviously is, is one of those, those things, but any practical tips that you can give, to anybody that recognizes themselves in this conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing is, I you know I said it back there, is just self-compassion. I think um, not being so hard on ourselves is the first step and really proceeding in whatever we do with gentleness, like real tender gentleness and not, you know, forcing ourselves to do something we don't want to do because that reminds us, reminds our bodies on a subconscious level of the fact that we had to do something we didn't want to do. Right. So this is the sort of idea of re-traumatization that we can create for ourselves. So with that spirit of self-compassion, the number one most important thing is to continue to reorient to somatic comfort. So whether that means, you know, taking more warm baths, taking more walks in the forest, taking more breaks to cuddle your pet or your loved ones, finding, instituting opportunities in your life from morning to night that support you to feel an experience of body level safety, like just everything's going to be okay. And the world is not going to end. So whatever it is that maybe it's yoga, maybe it's meditation, but just to continue to reorient to that place where my body is safe, I feel safe, and I have my own back. Wow, thank you. That's that's great advice mm-hmm. and some really good pearls of wisdom within that. So thank you, Nisha. So 
What's your best contact information, Nisha, for those members of the audience that would like to reach out to you? Yeah, so my website, nishafair.com, is there. There's some resources on there. And if you're interested in uh, talking more, I offer free consults. So you can, um, you can book through the website. Excellent. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure, mm. as I say, that, that it's going to be a new word, uh, well, words, fawn and fawning, that uh, is going to be something that a lot of the audience are probably going to be able to resonate with that they might not have heard of previously. So thank you for that education. Of course. And the book, you can get the book on the website too, just uh, in case they're interested in picking it up. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Nisha. So it just leads me to say... True love starts with opening our hearts. And until next time, goodbye for now. Thanks for listening to the Hearts Entwined podcast. You can follow Lynn via the Facebook group, Two Hearts Entwined, or search Lynn Smith, inspirational speaker at LinkedIn, or email lynn at hearts-entwined.com. That's L-Y-N at hearts entwined.com Remember, true love starts with opening our hearts.